This week, who is a human? How do you serve others without diminishing yourself? And what's so special about cheese? These questions and more answered by the inimitable Sarah Ray Werner, coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had the absolute delight of talking with Sarah Werner, the creator of Girl in Space. We discussed the origins of the show, the difference between pantsing and planning when it comes to writing, and how the entire show itself is a veiled metaphor for many of the events in Sarah's life. Yeah, I was surprised too. Let's dive right into our discussion. Take it away, past me. Sarah Ray Werner, welcome Hi. to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, David, thank you for inviting me. This is this is an honor. I'm so I know you everybody probably says this right when they jump on the call with you, but I am just it's, so it's a, it's a mutual honor. <laughs> so cast your mind back to 2017, which was, by all counts, a big year for you, right? It was a you, big year. You left yes. the marketing field after a decade. You established Right Now as an LLC for your freelance writing work and consulting. Um, and you also stopped being the president of the Lutheran congregation you served for a decade. Yes. Can you tell me, in the mindset of that period, that multi-month period in 2017, about the origins of Girl in Space and what made you want to tell <sighs> that story in the format of podcasting. So 2017 was a big deal for me. And it was it was the culmination of a lot of different things happening and me understanding for the first time in my life that I could make things happen. And it is all tied up in girl in space. Like you said, um, I left my job. I left my position uh, in a church. I left... Um, I left some relationships. I learned about toxic relationships and how to leave relationships for the first time. And a lot of this came from circumstance, but it also came into what I was putting into myself. And this is really, honestly, uh, I've said this before, and I will just continue to say it because it's absolutely true. Girl in Space is an autobiography. It's, it's, it's my own story of what was happening to me and what I was trying to do in 2017. And I chose to do it in space so that people wouldn't catch on right away that that's what I was doing. They're like, oh, it's a sci-fi story. That's cool. And it's like, no, this is, this is a true story of things that are exactly happening to me right now. I, I chose space because I feel like, okay, do you know um, it, it, the poem Miniver Chivi, Born Too Late? Mm-mm. Okay, it's it's a um, and I forgot who it's by. It's it's by uh, a beautiful classic poet, and the premise of the poem is there's this guy named Miniver Chivi, and he like can't live his life because he's always wondering like, oh, if I was a medieval knight, I could have been saving people and I would be a hero. And really, in the present life, he's like wasting his time. I feel like like that, except the reverse. Um, so the reverse of that is I really, <laughs> this is going to be like the stupidest thing I've ever said, but uh, I feel like I was born to be like a starship pilot. Like that's what I've always wanted to do. Huh. I've always wanted to live on a spaceship and be in space. It is just 
um, a place where I feel really at home, even though I've never been there. And I'm sure that the requisite training you need to go into space would just make me puke all the time, constantly. Um, there is a lot of puking in Girl in Space. <laughs> there, there is. There, see, it's all true. She spends a lot of time throwing up. She spends a lot of time sick and cranky. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's life. But um, it, I, I'm saying all of this to say that space for me is metaphorical in the way that, you know, space generally is like there, there's a lot of podcasts that take place in space because a lot of us feel uh, on the edges of something. A lot of us feel um, like we're not a part of society. A lot of us feel like we're on the edge of things. A lot of us feel isolated. And um, in my case, you know, I've never really felt I'm just such a weird, awkward person. I've never felt like I belonged anywhere. I mean, until I really started joining this audio drama community where so many of these wonderful people are living. And um, so for me, space was just an apt metaphor for how I lived my life. I mean, I live for real in South Dakota. So I'm kind of isolated in the middle of nowhere anyway. And, and I wanted to explore what that meant. Um, and, and so I thought it was interesting uh, setting things on a spaceship that was slowly falling apart, which at the time, back in 2017, um, I live in a, I don't live in a nice house. Like I, well, okay, it's a nice house, um, but it's a, it's a fixer upper. Uh, my husband and I moved into this house and we had to redo everything, redo the floors. Um, I couldn't have furniture in my office for a long time because the ceiling leaked in seven different places. And it's just, um, so really everything I've like transliterated into Girl in Space. So, okay, so we've covered the the autobiographical origins of the podcast. Why did you want to make it a podcast and not another kind of, of fictional medium? What drew – I mean, because you'd, you'd been podcasting since, what, 2013 with Right Now? Yes. And uh, what a great question that is. It's – for me, it was all mind – it was a mindset kind of thing. Um, I had been blogging and writing – before I launched the Right Now podcast. So the Right Now podcast started as a blog called The Outlaw Novelist, which no longer exists. And I, it was a frustrating experience for me. It, I wasn't getting any traction. Nobody was reading it. I was lost among, you know, millions, literally millions of other uh, literary and writing blogs. And I just couldn't find a place to stand out. And so when I started the podcast, um, I loved how empowering it was. I it was something new for me. It allowed me to like learn some new skills, which I always love doing, um, and it gave me a, an actual voice, and and allowed me to stand out in a way that my blog never did. Just because I think most of it is because at the at the time podcasting was still so small. There were only two hundred and fifty thousand podcasts at that time. Um, and, and the space was, it's still relatively small when you compare it to blogs and, and other mediums like film and television and even radio. It's it's very tiny. But um, that really helps me to be a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond, so to speak. And so later on, I, I didn't put this together in my mind because I didn't know that fictional podcasting existed until I had a conversation with Paul Sading for the Right Now podcast. And I was like, oh, this is a guy who writes like audio fiction. What's that? Um, and by the end of our interview, he had convinced me that um, all of these novels I'd been struggling with um, and, and really hit the same walls in fiction writing that I had hit with blogging, um, with standing out and finding an audience and really figuring out how to tell a good story. Um, all of those barriers went away 
when I thought about it in the context of podcasting, just as those blogging barriers sort of evaporated when I turned my words into spoken words instead of written words. It's fantastic. Yeah, it was it was it was amazing. And and at first I was like, oh man, I, I I you know, I'm inventing this. This is fantastic. And then I realized that there's this whole beautiful well of uh, audio fiction that I needed to immerse myself in and um that's really uh, that's really how Girl in Space started. I just wanted to experiment. Um, and it did start as an experiment. I planned for it to fail. I planned for it to not really go anywhere. I just wanted to see what it tasted like a little bit. And I released the first episode and I hit... Um, at the time, I was working on networking. I was doing some public speaking. And so I started talking about these projects that I was working on. And I went to Podcast Movement in, I think it was July 2017. And I had cards printed up for Girl in Space. And I was very excited. And I was handing them out to everybody. And I think that really helped propel the success for Girl in Space because it got it out there. Um, I had a visible like symbol for it that I could hand people. And um, so Girl in Space ended up being featured on the front page of iTunes right when it launched. And, you know, who knows if that was because of attending podcast movement or shilling my business card to literally everybody or any other factor. Um, but the show blew up and I was like, okay, I guess now I need to write a second episode. <laughs> <laughs> In an interview you did with Chiara Sagramola from Spreaker in 2017. Oh, yeah. I love her. Yes. So you referred to yourself then, and this was before Girl in Space came out because it was like March 2017. Yes. You referred to yourself as a pantser rather than a planner, a writer who improvises rather than outlines. Has that remained true of your writing in 2019? Sadly, yes. And I I say sadly a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, I don't know any other way to create other than pantsing it. Um, and and for those of you who are like, what? Pantsing? Isn't that when you like take down your pants? From a pe-? No. Pantsing is writing by the seat of your pants as opposed to like coming up with a thorough outline and really planning the whole thing and knowing where it's going to end. No, I um, every episode of Girl in Space throughout season one, I wrote by the seat of my pants. I was like, well, what did I like about the last episode? What did my listeners like and not like, oh, uh, who, oh, they, they seem to like this character. They're not really responding to this other character in the way I thought they would. So I'm going to make this character a little more prominent. So it was very weird and on the fly. And it allowed me to explore all of my favorite aspects of storytelling uh, without anything that um, I dislike doing. And I feel like that's a very selfish way to create um, and maybe creating in itself is a selfish act, and we can talk about that another day. But um, <laughs> sure, for me, uh, I love exploring. I love coming up with problems to solutions on the fly. I also have um, adult ADD, and so it's very hard for me to focus enough to actually like plan something out and then not get bored with it after I've already come up with the story. I- I've tried outlining before, and I just I get so bored I quit the project, which I know sounds really entitled and selfish, but um, I-, I can't work that way. And because my brain is, doesn't maintain interest in problems that I've already solved, which also made it very hard for me to hold down a day job, as I'm sure you could imagine. So it keeps me interested writing on the fly. It is very stressful. And I would not, re- I would not recommend it to anybody who doesn't derive a particular joy from 
creating spontaneously and feeling the pressure of people wanting more of something that you don't even know is going to exist yet. Um, so yeah. yes, yes, definite pantser. I have horrible problems <laughs> with planning anything in life. And you can ask anyone <laughs> um, about what a terrible planner I am. Uh, but yes. I mean, ask anybody on my team <laughs> about how, how, how I fall apart as soon as a, a calendar is involved. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, plan time, plan time. How do we make it go, please? Yes. Yes. Oh, that, yes. So much. But talking of pressure to create, this is, this is actually a pretty propitious time that you and I are talking because you recently released an episode of Right Now that delves into the long-awaited episode 13 of season one of Girl in Space. It's going to be a whopper. It's like a feature-length hour-plus episode. I think you said it was like 70-some pages, right? Yep. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and in this episode of Right Now, you talked about the like paralyzing effect of perfectionism, which has haunted mm -hmm. you through nine drafts of this episode, 70 hours of dialogue edits, 30 hours of recording, who even knows how much design and polish. Can you talk a little bit about, and I don't want you to just, you know, necessarily repeat, you know, I want people to listen to that episode of right now. <laughs> um, how do you combat, you know, the sunk cost fallacy and grind mm. past the fear of releasing something imperfect or past the not exactly pleasure, but safety rather of staying in the holding pattern of not having to deliver something yet? Oh, my Does that gosh. make sense as a question? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so my, my most recent episode of the Right Now podcast was about finishing what you start, which is uh, particularly difficult for me. Um, because I'm so disorganized and, and it's again, something that I, that I struggle with and, and continue to struggle with. And is one of probably the things that I need to struggle with in order to create. Um, but one of the things that keeps me from finishing is like you said, uh, the sense of perfectionism and tied up in perfectionism is expectation and how you handle the expectations that you've established for your own work and the expectations that people have built up about your work. And so, um, there, there's a little bit of safety in not finishing what you start, like you said, because um, you're in a holding pattern. You don't have to, while you might fulfill the expectations of yourself and of the people who are waiting so patiently and wonderfully for what you produce, there's also the danger and the risk of letting people down with an episode that isn't, and I think I say in that episode, uh, it's not worth the seven month or eight month wait. Like this isn't a, an eight month episode, Sarah. Um, even though I think a lot of people don't know what goes into creating a podcast and what goes on behind the scenes. And like you said, the hundreds and hundreds of hours I've put into this. Um, but, but there's a real temptation to stay within uh, the safety of that space of limbo, um, of, of not taking the risk and finishing the episode or releasing it. Or, um, if you're a beginning podcaster, uh, even releasing your first episode, you know, it's safer not to, to release it. You're, you're not open to criticism, uh, from either yourself or other people. Um, and it can be a safe and comfortable place, but, um, like I said earlier, um, I had a choice just like if I was going to stay at my day job or if I was going to leave it and I chose the risky path and I still continue to choose the risky path. And it's the path that is difficult to take because 
you have to make peace with the fact that what you're creating is not perfect and never will be perfect, which is frustrating because we want to put our perfect selves out there. But there is no perfect. There is just creating. Sure. You did a TED Talk in April that was partially about your upbringing, your work in the church, and your desire to serve. And ultimately, you came to the conclusion that service doesn't have to mean suffering, and that suffering is not a virtue, and that a person can give without destroying themselves, and indeed can serve while enriching their own lives. How how does this ethos surface in Girl in Space? Hmm. This is something. It does. Well, it it doesn't. It doesn't. Maybe an unexpected way. And for me, this is a lesson that I learned while creating Girl in Space. Um, ultimately, the everything comes back to why you create something. And for me, um, I have mission statements for both of my podcasts, and I have real change that I want to see each of these shows uh, affect uh, in separate ways. So the Right Now podcast exists to help people bring their words forward and to become public with their voice. And and when I accomplish that with the Right Now podcast, I'm happy because I've accomplished what I set out to accomplish. With Girl in Space, it, it was a little bit different. It was, I need a space to share my story so that other people can hear their own selves and their own struggles within that and hopefully learn healthy ways to deal with them and come to terms with their own limitations. And uh, there's there was like a whole bunch of different stuff that I had listed. Um, and so while I create Girl in Space as a fun project, I also view it, oh gosh, this is going to sound like so... I don't know what the word is for it. Hubris, I don't know. Um, I, I create Girl in Space sort of as an act of service. Um, it's it's something that I create, uh, hopefully, to spread a positive message, to spread um, some kind of goodness into people's lives, whether it's they get a kick out of the characters or they identify with X's story and situation. Um, it, and I and I was doing it, um, I have a Patreon that just people can give money if they want to, but I don't charge for it. Um, I don't do live events. I don't really charge for for anything I do. And I, I took a step back from my life and looked at what I was doing. And I was like, everything I do, I'm doing for free. And, and it's sort of, uh, it has a price. Uh, it's taking its toll on me. And so I really had to struggle for a long time with looking at what I was creating for people and how much of myself I was giving away for free and how much I could continue to give away. Um, and, and it's it's really hard for me because one of the one of the most important things for me in storytelling and art is accessibility. And I know that not everybody has, the means to pay for the content that they want to consume. And I want to respect that because at one point in my life, I was in that place. You know, I've been in the place where I can't afford food or I can't um, afford, you know, 
I mean, to this day, I live in a little crumbling house and I share a car with someone and, you know, all of that stuff. So I'm, I, I want to be very cognizant of other people's struggles and how they access things. But so, so there's a real internal struggle of do I make this free, but then also um, do I deserve to be paid for my work? And how do I deserve to be paid for my work? And who pays me for my work? And who reimburses us for the services that we provide? And how much of that is the currency of suffering? How much of that, how much of what I create needs to come from me abstaining from luxury or uh, choosing to make sacrifices in my life so that I can continue to do this and continue to make it for free? And so being being a creator, um, I, I feel like is is tied up in that. Um, as far as service, being uh, a good thing, like leaving, li uh, living a servant's life and serving people. Um, the characters in Girl in Space are exploring why they're doing what they're doing in a very similar way. Um, it comes out through the story and through some bonus episodes that I haven't released yet and episode 13 um, that a lot of people are working for Caldwell Enterprises, which is presented as like this big evil corporation. Um, a lot of them are working for very compelling reasons. They're not working so they can roll in piles of money. They're working for a reason. And I think it's really important for us to all explore what we're doing and why we're doing it, um, whether it's for moral reasons or just for our own understanding, and to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves in a healthy way at the same time. Because if I could, I would give and give and give until I had nothing. And um, that's still something that I struggle with. And that's basically what my TED talk was about is when is it okay to be selfish in a way, you know, when is it okay, uh, to ask for things? And so, yeah, how are we filling ourselves back up? How do we replenish and how do we do that in a healthy way, uh, that doesn't take from other people or that doesn't drain someone else's resources? Um, so really I'm looking for, uh, you know, renewable, renewable energy, renewable resources. Um, I would like my, I would like myself to be solar powered in some way. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, sure. I, and I, I think that that would just solve so many problems if we could all get to the place where we were replenishing each other and replenishing ourselves in healthy ways and not selfish and, and greedy ways. Yeah. Well, this is, this is something that I kept thinking about on this, on this listen through um, before the interview. Um, there, there, the, the initial episodes of Girl in Space do this, this thing that you've talked about elsewhere. Like you told Alex Hensley at Audio Drama Rama that, you know, you, you, you inverted the trope of someone on a lone space station being rescued. X didn't want to be rescued at all. She wanted right. solitude. Oh my gosh. But yes. as she interacts more and more with the Caldwell personnel, befriending them, essentially converting them to her side, she realizes that human interaction was something that she actually maybe secretly craved and appreciated. And I, I'm, I'm curious about what part of your personality is reflected there, right? <laughs> like I know you're an introvert on your website. You describe yourself as an INFP. Um, but does X's journey towards friendship reflect any understandings that you have had about relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Oh my gosh, there was a point in my life, and I think it was probably like my early to mid 20s, when I was like, I've got everything figured out, I'm leveled up, uh, I'm a leader, I've done all this leadership training, I'm in a high powered agency job, like I've got it all figured out. And um, I I tried... I tried living out some of my power and I tried asking for a raise at work and I tried asking for a promotion at work and I tried um, stepping into things outside of my comfort zone and taking risks. And I found that, A, I couldn't do it by myself. And I feel like that's a very after school special lesson to learn, but um, people, you need people to give you a boost because other people are where you need to be. And that's where I talked about earlier in this episode, um, joining that mastermind group, working with a series of mentors. Um, I love the idea not of climbing a ladder and stepping on the shoulders of other people who are below you, but looking up and reaching out a hand and um, holding the hand of somebody else who's helping you uh, climb onto this mountain. it's and it's really something that I look to um, pay forward. So um, now I do lead uh, mastermind groups and I mentor and I hopefully help other other people um, find their power and help pull them up to to where I am. Just as I continue to look for other people who can help me continue to climb. But I I, I did go through a place in in my twenties where I was a little bit resentful. Um, that I needed other people's help. And I was a little bit burned out by not feeling accepted and a little bit resentful that I needed to act a certain way in order to be included with other people. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to be left alone to think. Um, I am an introvert, um, but I also have found that I really love interacting with people, but that is like a new discovery that I didn't make until like my early thirties. So yeah. So now when I go to a conference or convention, I get really excited because I get to like hug all these podcasters and I get to interact with fans of the show and listeners. And that's really exciting now, but like five, 10 years ago, um, I would have been very like, you know, I'm going to be like hissing at you in the dark, like a little creep, um, <laughs> Like, don't touch me. Um, so I've I've had to learn the importance of other people in life, which I feel is something I should have established like right away, like in the Mr. Rogers neighborhood years. But I, I've had to learn that as an adult very slowly. And it's been a very rewarding education. I mean, it's it's hard. I also think that the way we're socialized as Americans, you know, implies this certain ethic of individualism at all costs, you know, and if you can't make it alone, then you haven't really made it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Because we romanticize that so much. We romanticize the hero's journey and we all want to see ourselves as the hero. Um, But the hero, you know, can't rely too hard on other people. Um, I mean, like, right. Uh, I, I, gosh, I appreciate that so much. Um, and I think it goes back to, I'm not going to go into a rant about capitalism or anything, but it goes back oh, to like, no, what? Tavarish, the answer is always <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> Sorry. 
Well, it goes, it goes back to what you earn and what is yours um, by virtue of having earned it and whether you earned it on your own or whether you had help. Like that's something that we look down upon. And it's something that I've had to learn and I'm still learning um, to, to deal with is, hey, it's okay to be in community. It's okay to ask for help. Um, and the other thing is I was just a weird kid and I was shunned and I was bullied and I learned, I think, that life was just easier on my own if I didn't have to make those social interactions, if I didn't have to uh, change the way I acted and behaved to fit in. So when X says that she's lived alone on the Kavatica for 9,000 days, that's like 25 years. Yes. Is that is that the period of isolation that you felt for yourself? Yes, it is. And um, Damn. I think it's one of those things that, you know, the casual listener to Girl in Space, like obviously they don't know me. They don't know that this is part of my story, right? Like they, they just don't know. Um, but yeah, I was um, about when I was 20, 24, 25, I was still working at a bank. And if you know anything about me, the, the thought of me working in a very like conservative, button down bureaucratic bank will probably like make you tilt your head and say what? But yeah, I was working in, uh, I was working at a bank and I had to wear a suit every day and women had to wear pantyhose and heels and I had put up a wall between myself and other people. I, I think that I tried when I first started working there, I tried finding a way to fit in and belong. And I invited people to do NaNoWriMo with me in November. So National Novel Writing Month, I would send out an email to people in other departments who I thought might be into it. Like, hey, do you want to try writing a novel with me this November? And they would always be like, oh, Sarah, you're so weird and silly. No. And and so I, I just I just started living into that part of my identity where I was this absurd joke of a human being who could never say or do the right thing. And I really internalized that part of my identity. And I began to, um, I don't know if reciprocated is the right word, but I began to um, just really embrace it and say, you know what, I am a weird loner and I don't know how to make friends and I don't know how to fit in. I don't know how to go play golf with the other people at this bank. I don't know how to go for drinks after work and complain about bosses. I want to create and I want to make good things. And I want to do, I want to talk about weirdness and whimsy and life and Jurassic Park. And like, that's what I want out of life. And like, I just wasn't finding that at the bank. And I was new to South Dakota and I didn't know where else to make friends. Anyway, long story short, um, I started pushing back and I said, you know what? Fine. If you don't want to accept me into your society, I will reject society. And really, Girl in Space was about me learning to live in society again, like learning to befriend people and get along with other people. And I mean, that sounds really, it sounds really childish. And, and I think in a way it really was. Um, but in 2012, 2011, 2012, um, I applied for a job at this marketing firm and it was a startup. It was quirky. Um, and I really started to understand that's when I had uh, these new coworkers who were also excited about ideas and changing things and, um, you know, talking about mystery science theater and stuff at work that 
I was like, oh, wait, okay, not everybody is a banker. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm very slow to learn things. And that was one of the things I was very slow to learn. Um, but just learning to let people in um, is still something that I struggle with a little bit. But Girl in Space has helped me process that um, in, in a way that I'm very, very grateful for. Let, let's let's shift from talking about like the masks that people put on because of the like stultifying businesses that they work for to talking about one of those businesses in the world of the show. So Caldwell Enterprises is a thoroughly evil company, but the little detail that they have a manual of branding and conduct stuck out to me as an especially nasty little barb. <laughs> um, are you at liberty to tell me any horror stories from your years in advertising? Oh, man. Oh, what a, what a fantastic question. Um, like, like I said, uh, most slash all of what's in uh, Girl in Space is, you know, comes from my real life and real life experience. Um, it, I feel like one of the worst things was um, at the bank that I worked for, like women having to wear pantyhose. It was just this mixture of like sexism and conservatism and unnecessary control over people. Like it was just this perfect storm. Of, it was a small thing. It was a small thing, but it was it was enough to make me really angry. And I still remember it like 10 years later. So um, this, this handbook of branding and conduct um, really at its core treats people like objects. It treats people like assets to the business. And there's, you know, this comes up a lot in sci-fi as a trope, but, you know, people being numbers or people being barcodes, um, that's a really popular trope in science fiction. Um, but it's true in the corporate world. If you're running a business and you're looking at a, at a person as an investment or a producer or even a product, um, it's really hard not to get cynical about that. Another theme that I see in Girl in Space is one that I think that a lot of science fiction tries to tackle, which is who is a person who has the full rights of personhood and of citizenship? Like X is this experimental human being. She's, you know, a rogue experiment. She has no birth certificate. I think the counselor says she has no corporate ID. Mm -hmm. um, neither she nor Kai are perceived as fully human by the other people in the setting, but we as the audience, are meant to see them as obviously human, yes. right? Um, and, and I guess my question is, you know, you grew up in the church, you're a pastor's kid, you've, you've done service work your whole adult life. How, how are your spiritual practices and beliefs reflected in the ethos of Girl in Space, especially as, as regards, I, basically the question of who has a soul, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Will's going to yell at me because she says I always have like a soul's question in my interviews. But this this actually seems yeah. kind of explicit. Yeah. Oh, and that's like, that's the reason that the counselor gives that X is not a person because she doesn't have a soul because she was made and not born. Um, and, and he's, the counselor is very explicit about that. And, and again, I think season two is going to explore that a little bit more with some of the cloning practices that have been going on. But I, I'm... I've changed as a person over the years, as I think most of us, you know, most people change as they age and their perspectives change and they learn and they interact with other people. And this has become something that 
I've been struggling with for the past several years is not necessarily who has a soul necessarily, but um, Girl in Space tackles this from the, the standpoint of sentience. And it comes out like spoiler for episode 13. Um, it So I guess like skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want a Girl in Space uh, season finale spoiler for episode 13. Um, but it comes out that uh, Charlotte has gained full sentience and what that means and if Charlotte is then this AI who is valid as a person and what that means. And I think this is going to be increasingly important um, as as we move forward in the technology that we're developing today um, is what do we, A, recognize as not necessarily human but worthwhile, uh, what is worthy of love and respect. Um, and, and my answer uh, just where I am spiritually now is that everybody is worthy of respect and personhood and honor. And I would even extend that to artificial intelligences, um, which I feel like could be a very controversial statement. But um, I think that if in any degree you or an entity is self-aware, there needs to be a way that that self is treated. And um, it, it also, what I, I was also trying to get at in that was who bestows the worth, right? So when we talk about X not having corporate citizenship, in the eyes of Caldwell Enterprises, she is a non-entity. She does not matter. She does not have worth. But she knows in herself, in her heart, in her soul, whatever you want to call it, she knows that she has worth. And so reconciling the worth that you know you have with the fact that other people are telling you that you don't have worth, um, what does that do and what does that mean and where does that conversation end? Um, I, I think that it's, I think that it's in a way driven by religion and spirituality and stuff like that. I actually, um, I'm going to throw a coworker under the bus because that's what I'm choosing to do right now. Um, I had a coworker who was, um, even as I was doing church work and mission work and stuff, um, I wasn't religious enough for her. She was very extreme, uh, extremely religious. And because I enjoyed like rock music and modern movies and I wore pants, um, I was going to hell. And that in her, and she told me that explicitly, um, that, you know, the day that I would roast in hell, you know, I'd be sorry for all these things that I'd done. And she told me this uh, in, in a work environment, which we won't even go into that right now. <laughs> um, but it really got me thinking about, you know, uh, who gives worth and who earns worth. And it, it's really this delicate dance that we do. Um, I would love to see a place, you know, obviously where people love and respect each other, but, you know, regardless of, of any difference. But I think as long as there are institutions that have a hierarchy of worth, uh, including the church, including corporations, um, where we don't see people as truly equal and equally valuable and equally worthwhile and worthy of love, um, that's where so many of our problems come from, is just the, the establishment of any hierarchy in, in that sense. 
Last kind of heavy question. Yeah, I love these. I love these. Or, or not, you know, whichever. Uh, what what does it mean to you that X has no name or that her name is literally X or Specimen X? So I, um, one of my favorite books growing up was, um, okay, you've probably read The Hatchet. I feel like that's by Gary Paulson. Um, sure. So Gary Paulson. I haven't read it since I was in like fourth grade, but yeah. That You know what? In, in a way, like it's still my dream to like live off the grid and like do a survivalist. Th- that's like totally one day I'm going to do that. But that book left a huge impact on me. Um, but Gary Paulson has another book called Harris and Me. And it's very, very much less known. And it's... Um, I don't know why it's not as well known. It's like, I remember it being very funny. I also remember it was the first book that is I ever Harris read. Harris a dog? Have I read this book? Maybe. Well, Harris is, I think, his cousin. Okay. And like, so this kid moves from the city to a farm uh, to live with his cousin, Harris. And Harris is just like insane. Like Harris is this very, I won't use the word insane because um, I that's very judgmental and ableist, but um, Harris is a little bit of an off the wall character. He's very non-traditional. And, and this child has to like reconcile um, what is life with one environment? What is life in this new environment? What, who am I becoming in the presence of Harris? Um, But the character very purposefully does not have a name. And and you, I never, I didn't notice it on my first read through. And then my second, I was writing a book report on it in like sixth grade. And I was like, wait, what's this character's name? And the character didn't have a name. It was just a nameless character. And I was like, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. And um, that stuck with me as a fun, um, a fun way to play around with identity and who gets to name who and who gets to... Um, you know, because we, we talk about names, and I think in the very first episode, um, X is talking about seeing her father's name etched into the stereo microscope that she's using to examine uh, some items. And she muses, uh, you know, what is a name? Do, do we name things to, like, give them power, to take away power? Like, why do we name things? And so I, I have this preoccupation with the English language and with naming things and with giving and taking away power. Um, and I wanted to play with that a little bit um, in what X allows herself to be called and in what she allows other people to call her because she does have a given name that I have never uh, shared in the podcast. And I have, it's one of the most frequently asked questions I get about Girl in Space is what is X's real name? And the question that I want to ask back is why does that matter? What, you know, what, oh gosh, I, I don't want to default to Shakespeare, but like, what, what does a name mean? Like we, we have so much, there's so much packed into names culturally. And, um, I, I'm really interested in identity politics and how we can claim part of ourselves by choosing to withhold our name or choosing to represent ourselves by a new name or another name. Um, I, so I have a quote unquote real name for X, but arguably X's real name is X, which is the name that she chose. It was, it was the, as you find out in later episodes of Girl in Space, it was the letter stamped on her embryonic vial um, because there were 26 vials and she was number 24. And that's just so, but she's chosen that name for a reason. 
And she writes it on the data pad for a reason. And I just really wanted to play again with uh, identity and ownership and control and really um, what we claim for ourselves. What does it mean to you that X and the other pre-contact residents of the Cavatica exist in symbiosis with Ra, the artificial star? Like, what is what is the thing that you need to survive without which you get <laughs> you wither and you get nauseated and sad? Mm. For me, it is, and I didn't realize this until I went through a few cycles without it, but for me, it is like creative, creative writing, expressing myself. Um and I, so I could say that, or I could be just like really glib and say like coffee because I would die without it. Um, but it's, there's just so many things and it's so interesting to me what we choose to live in harmony with and what we choose to um, become key elements of ourselves and our lives. And I think for X, it's very important that she is in a place where she's struggling with being this like independent, isolated creature, um, a with complete free will, and yet she is beholden to something. And and I think it's just really, um, it's really fun to explore the limitations and the freedoms that come with that. And so for me, with creative writing, um, if I don't write, if I go a month without writing something or creating something, um, I fall into, so I, I suffer from chemical depression. So like, I, I have that just as something that I live with. But I fall into a psychological funk that's different from uh, the clinical depression um, if I don't write. I, I because I'm not living fully into myself and into my truth. So I, I deal with a very separate uh, type of depression if I'm not creating. And I don't know why that is. All I know is that for me, living a healthy, balanced life is living in symbiosis with creation, with writing or painting. I mean, it can go, it can, I choose writing because um, it comes easiest to me. And for whatever reason, if it's just because I read a lot of books growing up and like the, the English language I feel is uh, an instrument or a uh, artistic tool that I feel most comfortable and familiar with. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's something that I need. And I think it's it's something that many people need and tend to suppress in themselves. Um, but boy, I am not living, <laughs> I'm not living my full life. I'm not living fully in my truth if I'm not um, in, in a constant state of creation. Um, so final question for you. Yes. Is uh, what are your favorite cheeses? <gasps> Cheese is such an important like thematic element of the show right? That X is always talking about. It is. Yes. Um, and so I want to know, like, what, what, what cheeses are you into of late? <sighs> oh, oh, okay. Um, oh gosh. So I would say that one of my favorite cheeses I did not appreciate until very recently in adulthood and it was a bit of a an acquired taste for me. And that is a very, very good triple cream brie. And I don't okay. like it like warmed up necessarily. A lot of people have it like warmed up and in a puff pastry. And a lot of it, I have a very sensitive palate. And so like if you get a really inexpensive brie, like I can't eat it because I'm a huge snob and all I can taste is like the mold around the edges and it doesn't taste right because it hasn't developed and bloomed properly. But um, I love 
really, really expensive brie. Like that's my indulgence. Um, my mouth is watering right now as I am talking about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for what that's worth. Um, so I, I love a really good brie. Um, I love a um, Sartori Montemore uh, has a, a cheddar that is exquisite. It is floral. It has crystals in it. Um, and it is just, Ooh. oh, it, and it's tangy and it's a little bit sweet. Um, it is just, I, I enjoy cheeses like many people enjoy wines. Like I, I get, I get a little snobby about it. Um, but the, the, for me, like no, that, legit. oh, it's just such a delightful experience. I actually recently purchased and I haven't tried it yet. It's been sitting in my fridge for like whatever I deem a special occasion. So maybe I'll have some tonight as I'm editing this episode. Um, I have a Sartori Montemori cheddar that has been crusted in espresso grounds. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I can experience the joys of coffee and the joys of my favorite, you know, my favorite hard aged cheese all in one. Um, and then just, just purely for the joy of eating it. Um, I love fresh mozzarella. I love it. It's so mild and creamy and you have to pay full attention to tasting it. Um, it's not like a cheddar where it like explodes in your mouth with sharpness and tang. It's just, it's gentle. It's like, am I really tasting this? It's just so beautifully ephemeral and soft. And you're like, oh, hello, fresh mozzarella. Let me greet you. Um, so the, those are, I think, my three favorite cheeses right now. Cool. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. <sighs> David, thank you so much. <laughs> but you're, you're such a treat. Well, so are you. So are you, my friend. Um, this has been, as I said, an absolute pleasure. So thank you again. If you love the work that Sarah does, subscribe to Girl in Space and her nonfiction podcast, Right Now, spelled W-R-I-T-E, and consider donating to her Patreon at patreon.com slash girlinspace. You can also donate to ours at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival, or you can support us by buying sweet merchandise at our store, radiodramarevival.com slash shop. We're going to Pod Tales this October, and if you're unable to join us there, we want to hand out your business cards. We've got a booth, and we want to represent you. If you have business cards or stickers or anything you'd like us to hand out, mail them to us by October the 12th. That mailing address is Radio Drama Revival, care of Fred Greenhalge, that's G-R-E-E-N-H-A-L-G-H, P.O. Box 51, Alfred, Maine, 04002. If you don't have business cards or you live outside the United States and mailing to Maine is impractical, reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Radiodrama. We'll work something out. Let us be your signal booster, your lighthouse. That's why we do what we do. And now, let us sound the traditional end of episode gong. The sound of that gong tells me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival, 
all storytellers welcome.